ಓಸುದೇವಸುತ ಕಂಸಚಾಣೋರಮರ್ದನ In the Bhagavad Gita, we are now studying the second chapter. There are three great themes in the second chapter. One, of course, the teaching of Jnana Yoga, the, the teaching about the Atman, what we truly are. The second one is Karma Yoga, how to transform our actions, both religious and secular, um, into, into spiritual practice, how to convert our daily activities into spiritual practice. That is Karma Yoga. And then a third is what we are doing now, the result of all of this. What do you get out of it? Suppose I do become enlightened, then how will I be different from what I am right now? That was Arjuna's question. And if you remember, the question was put in four parts. The enlightened person, how is that enlightened person when that enlightened person is in samadhi, absorbed in his true nature as the Atman? What is it like? And then the three other questions are, when the enlightened person is actually interacting with this world, which we perceive, we, we live in, um, how does this enlightened person differ from the rest of us? Or how will I be different? How will I be different from what I am right now? And those three questions were, how does this enlightened person talk? How does this enlightened person sit? And how does this enlightened person move around or walk? Now, of course, you know the questions are not as simple as they sound. Talk is not, not literally, how does he talk? You would say, simple, with, in English or in Sanskrit or something. No, uh, that's not the question. So, the, we saw the answer to the first question last time. And now we are going into the, the next the set of three questions. How does this enlightened person interact with the world? Remember, keep in mind... These are not only, this is not only a description of enlightenment, but also these are practices for the rest of us. So by describing the enlightened person, uh, Krishna is also telling us what we should be working towards. Verse number 56. So verses 56 and 57, verse 55 is an answer to the first question. What is the enlightened person like in Samadhi, Samadhista? And the 56th and 57th verses are an answer to the question, Kim Prabhasheta, how does the enlightened person speak? And uh, we'll see what is actually the deeper meaning of the question. When you look at the answer, we'll see the deeper meaning of the question. So 56, please repeat after me. Dukkheshu Anudvigna Mana Dukkheshu anudvigna mana Sukheshu vigata spriyam Sukheshu vigata spriyam Vitaraga bhaya krodha Vitaraga bhaya krodha Sthita dhimuni rujyate Dhimuni rujyate So that person is said to be a sage of settled wisdom. That means enlightenment is stable. 
doesn't come and go yeah. you wouldn't believe how many questions we get here that i've got it but it goes away this is the answer to your question if you think you've got it but it goes away it is settled forever so what the, how does this person speak says who is undisturbed when unpleasant things happen in the midst of dukkha undisturbed unperturbed and in the midst of pleasant things uh, uh, happiness uh, things uh, which which one would want is not hankering not grasping transcending fear and anger and uh, and desire raga is desire fear is bhaya anger is krodha such a person is said to be his wisdom is said to be uh, settled that means stable so let's look at this and immediately you notice one thing the meaning of the question the real question was not how does this person speak but how does this person react maybe in speech to pleasant and unpleasant things in life to happiness and sorrow in life there is a way in which we react in which i react now and after i become enlightened how will it how will it change notice immediately the maturity of the question it's taken for granted that the pleasant and unpleasant things which are happening now will continue to happen notice how does the enlightened person react in sorrow when there is there are, there are miserable th- things which are unpleasant painful when they happen how does this enlightened person react i think there is space uh, those who have got chair next to them free chair raise your hand yeah all right you guys are coming all the way from princeton yeah we are okay <laughs> So how does this person react when uh, when unfortunate things unpleasant things happen which means ev- even after you're enlightened nasty things can still happen life will continue as it is continuing now and this is not a simple uh, it's not what you might call a no brainer because many people think that after I'm enlightened everything will be a bed of roses a little bit of reflection shows that it is not so if you simply look at the lives of the saints if you look at the lives of those who are enlightened does, does it seem that it's a bed of roses afterwards that everything is fine often you see they probably suffer much more than <laughs> we would be uh, devastated if we got a fraction of that kind of suffering so what does it mean is something to understand because enlightenment in vedanta or any any spiritual uh, path is promised as overcoming of suffering attainment of bliss atyantika dukkha nivritti paramananda praptishcha in sanskrit the whole quest of the buddha you remember there is suffering is there a way out of suffering and uh, in any religious path whether it's the christian salvation or uh, the buddhist nirvana or the hindu moksha overcoming of suffering Uh, going beyond uh, the miseries of worldly life that is a common thing in in every religious uh, it's a, it's a solution to the problem of the world after all what does religion promise ultimately a solution to the problems of the world and immediately here it says dukkheshu so in in suffering and we we should ask a question do that mean suffering continues but didn't you just promise that after enlightenment one transcends suffering it's worth 
sitting here for a little while and thinking about it. Because we carry this, these errors forward into our spiritual life. I was in Stony Brook a um, um, couple of weeks back. And the Professor Arindam Chakravarti, a brilliant philosopher, who, by the way, is going to speak here in April, in the third week of April, last, uh, last Sunday of April, fourth week. So he was giving a talk about, and the, the title of the talk is very relevant to this. It was Pain, Poetry and Philosophy. Pain, Poetry and Philosophy. Not as unconnected as you might think. Pain is the, pain is the source for philosophy. And also poetry. Out of suffering also poetry comes. Poetry, it's very interesting that um, the uh, name for the sages of the Upanishads was Kavi. In Sanskrit, Kavi the, uh, is, is the word for poet. But the ancient meaning of poet was a sage. So philosophy came from poets. Um, anyway, the reason I'm invoking him is that he, in his talk, he said, he quoted from the Buddha, saying that... Um, what is suffering like? He says suffering is a, like a person who gets hit by an arrow. Who gets hit by an arrow. Remember, this was 2,500 years ago. So it was much more likely to get hit by an arrow in those days than, than now. <laughs> yeah. It's worse now. Mass shootings and everything. <laughs> One gets hit by things far worse than arrows nowadays. But you get hit by an arrow and the person is suffering. Is saying, oh, it hurts, it stings, it, it hurts. And immediately the person gets hit by another arrow. Imagine. And that is suffering. So what are these two arrows? The first arrow is the unpleasant occurrence, the unwanted occurrence in the world. So maybe somebody behaves badly, or so I get physically hurt, or um, a wish is not fulfilled, things like that. That's the first arrow. What's the second arrow? The second arrow is my reaction to it. Oh, isn't it so awful? How terrible it is. I'm suffering so much. Poor me. That second arrow. And suffering is a combination of the two. And the professor said in his talk, Buddha very politely says he cannot do anything about the first arrow. But his philosophy promises to take away the second arrow. So is it a partial solution? No, it's a total solution to the problem of suffering. First of all, practically speaking, the second arrow is the source of most of our, our agony, of our suffering. I've mentioned this earlier. Once I was at a conference, a medical conference. Um, and the conference was about pain. Pain. And uh, it, it was mostly doctors, but there was a session. They have multiple sessions. These are usually huge things. Those who are doctors, you know, um, big hotels or convention centers and hundreds of uh, presentations and so on. So one of the sessions was on um, talk therapies uh, for managing pain. So that's, you can imagine, that's where the Vedanta got in and, and the mindfulness and the Vedanta. I was also invited. So one of the doctors gave a very nice presentation. He said, there's a secret to know about pain. Um, and he meant physical pain. The secret to know about pain is, it's this. That 80% of pain, the suffering we get, the actual pain we experience, 80% of it is not physical. And he drew three concentric circles. Small circle, 
medium circle and an outermost bigger circle. And he said the small circle res- represents about 20%. By the way, he was talking about chronic pain, pain which is continuing. Acute pain comes and goes. It might be due to some particular reason. But chronic pain, like a back pain or things which come and go for a long time. Um, so the 20% is the actual physical pain, he said. Of all the suffering that you think you are feeling, actually only 20% of it is physical. Then the, mid, the, the intermediate, the, the medium circle around it, he says, is our mental reactions to that pain. Uh, it's going to come. It's going to hurt. How awful it is. And I'm suffering. Even when the physical pain is not actually present at this moment, I'm still suffering continuously. Before, during, after. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. So this thing is a, is a much bigger percentage than the, that little 20%. It didn't, I don't remember how much of the percentage it was. And then the bigger circle around it uh, was the general social problems associated with chronic pain. I can't go to this person's, um, maybe I can't go to the party, I can't attend this event I wanted to go to, my mobility is restricted, um, I can't keep in touch with, many things, many things associated with uh, the uh, inconveniences associated in life and in community with suffering continuously. And he says this middle circle and the outermost circle, they account for 80% of, the, of our suffering. The actual physical sensation of pain, the stabbing pain, the piercing pain, the burning or the dull pain, that one is only 20%. And he said, all our pain medication addresses that 20%. Only that 20%. And half of the time does not work. And all of the time is associated with side effects. And this is something he said we don't talk about because it's a very depressing fact. And this is where he said these other therapies come in. So the second arrow, the Buddha was right in a very practical sense also. The Buddha was right. The second arrow is the the real source of suffering. And he says spirituality can take it away. So when he says in when suffering comes, unpleasant events happen, he means that first arrow, that 20%. It might be a physical pain, might be some, some kind of problem outside. So That one. That one too can be overcome. Just by the way, you might ask then, what about the first arrow? What about the first arrow? The first arrow is the, is the painkiller you take and the, the physical therapy that you do to uh, overcome the first arrow. It's not just physical pain, the, all other, the worldly solutions could be medical, could be counseling, could be all sorts of things. Whatever we try in the world, that addresses the 20% and works less than half the time. <laughs> so, even that one also would not matter for an enlightened person. This is what he's saying. Even that one is overcome. Dukkeshu anudvigna manaha. Unperturbed mind, serene mind, when that unpleasant thing happens. You might say, why does it happen? Should it not go away when a person is enlightened? Practically, you know it doesn't. When you look at the lives of the saints, you see it does not. And it will not go away. Vedanta says, all these events which are coming to us, pleasant and unpleasant, are due to our past karma. It is caused by our past karma. Good karma produces pleasant reactions. 
bad karma produces uh, unpleasant uh, uh, experiences how we react to it the second arrow that's what spirituality deals with won't spiritual practice reduce people have this question that first arrow does isn't it reduced at least a little bit by spiritual practice and the holy mother does say that spiritual practice blunts the effect of bad karma she does she does say that she gives an example where a person might have lost an arm the person suffers a pin prick if the person is devoted to god doing japa praying fixed mind centered in god so the effects of past karma which are coming are blunted one of the commentaries i was reading by madhusudan saraswati he talks about suffering how does suffering take place he says everything is ruled by karma all these things are coming to us because of our past karma so when suffering comes the ignorant one says alas i am lost how terrible it is how how miserable i am i am the worst uh-huh. and then he's actually he says that in not in english in sanskrit <laughs> and then the next line he says would these reactions have been would these sentiments have been there when you were doing that bad karma that would have been much more productive <laughs> not when you are getting the result he says it is illogical to set in motion a cause and not expect the result to come when the result has come it is better to forbear so dukkheshu anudvigna manaha usually the problem in the path of knowledge is what people will say is i understand that i am not the body therefore I, pain is not my pain i am a witness to that i am witness to the body i am witness to the mind the physical pain i am a witness to that the mental upset i am also i am a witness to that it's not very difficult to understand that from that perspective to distance yourself internally from our from your problems from one's problems internally psychologically open up a space it is true but understanding is not uh, all of it the usual complaint is when it actually happens my reaction is exactly as it was earlier i react in panic in anxiety in fear in in anger in irritation in envy in jealousy those reactions still c- keep coming so those are because of the unpurified mind uh, in the path of knowledge that's why three stages shravana manana nididhyasana you listen to these teachings then resolve your doubts clarity once you have got clarity and conviction then one more step is that's why it's necessary that is one immerses oneself in that clarity in that understanding you have got stay with it soak yourself in gyana in that knowledge so that our reactions are purified so when the time comes our reactions uh, are different not the way they used to be for the enlightened person it's not just an intellectual understanding it's a visible reality it, it's a fact of life so the person can react from that that level what happens to us is we have a theoretical understanding and that also sometimes hazy and confused and then when the world comes at us it's not a theoretical world it's a real world when the kicks and blows come they are not theoretical kicks and blows they are real and so our reaction is also real the real is from from the unpurified uh, emotional Um, uh, part of our minds for the enlightened person it is not so also remember what can one expect as one progresses in this path 
The enlightened person does not react in anger or irritation or, or jealousy or depression. Unperturbed mind, anudvignaha. And also unperturbed speech. So the question was originally, how does this person speak? So this, the reaction in speech also will be quite different from us. Um, as we practice, as we try to remain unperturbed and centered, it's centered in what? Remember, they're all talking about spiritual enlightenment, that I am the witness consciousness. Don't forget that. See, sometimes people, they misunderstand and they say, all right, so you are telling me to be enlightened? When unpleasant things come, I must clench my um, uh, jaws and you know, sort of bear with it. And when uh, uh, so somebody is irritating, I should not express my irritation. Anger is there, boiling inside, but I should not express it. I should just have... I saw on, on uh, YouTube, these discussion sessions, they go on. Political people on different ends of the political spectrum, they are debating something. But the polite thing here is to remain, not to get angry. To get angry means, or rather, not to show anger. They're getting angry. Getting really angry inside and, out, uh, and externally a big grin. Like that. <laughs> You can see it in the eyes. The guy is very annoyed. But he or she is just uh, whatever he is, saying all sorts of nasty things about the other person with a big sweet smile. <laughs> no, no, not that way. Not that way. What they are saying here is we are really not the body. We are really not the mind. We are that witness consciousness acting through the body mind. So from that witness con consciousness perspective, from that perspective, there's no reason to be angry because we are that one same consciousness in everybody. Whom to blame and whom to praise when blamer and blamed, praiser and praised are but one. So when that feeling is there, when that clarity is there, from that perspective really would not get upset. But as we practice this, remember until that point, it's a gradual development. What can we expect? Three things will go down. Three things will happen. Three, there will be a reduction in three things. One is that I used to get upset all the time. Get angry. Some, so somebody's problem is anger. I used to be angry or irritated uh, morning and afternoon and evening. And uh, I used to go to bed grumbling. Now it's once in a while. So the frequency of becoming upset. Frequency. Not just anger. It could be depression, it could be um, envy or whatever it is. Um, the negativities. The frequency of that will go down. That's one thing one can expect. That this serenity in unpleasant circumstances is not like an on and off switch. That I didn't have it, now I'm enlightened, perfect. And people will say, what happened to you? Yesterday you were awful, now you're a saint. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> so first of all, you will notice that the frequency goes down. Frequency of becoming upset or irritated, angry, goes down, depressed. Second thing, the intensity is to fly into a rage earlier, throw things and um, like sort of burn up in anger. And now, it's a mild irritation. It's still there. But the intensity, the fury of that has gone down. Earlier I used to go into deep depression. Now I just feel a little unhappy. Yeah. That's a good sign. 
That's sign of progress. That, that one can expect and must expect. If I'm advancing in spiritual life, I must expect that. It happens over time. And then uh, one more thing that will go down is your recovery time. Um, earlier, maybe one would get angry and hold on to that anger. People hold on to the anger for years, lifetimes. What a miserable mind that is. Remember, anger is a fire that burns the place where it is lit first before burning anything else. When I light the fire of anger in my heart, it burns me first and then it harms others. That's why Swami Vivekananda said, a fool cannot get angry, a wise person does not. It's not that you lose the power of anger. You might be indignant for something, but the wise person does not get angry. Not just for the sake of others, for one's own sake. So the recovery time, now earlier I used to be angry for hours and hours and days and days and months and months. Now it's there like a flash, it's gone next moment. Or in the, it's there in the morning, it's gone in the evening. Just no trace of it at all. No trace of it at all. There's a saying in uh, India, Shadur Rag Jalit Dag. It means the anger of a monk should be like the... Yeah, even monks get angry. <laughs> You'd be surprised how, how often. But it should be like a line drawn in flowing water. What, do you ha what happens if you take a stick and draw a line in flowing water? As soon as you draw it, no sooner than you draw it, it's, it's gone. And there are funny stories to illustrate this. There's no use being angry with the world. Um, there was a monk who was very austere. It's, it's in the Himalayas. And... So he would sleep under a tree and for a, uh, um, a pillow he would use a brick. So imagine how austere that is. And so he would sleep uh, under a tree and uh, use a brick as a pillow. And while well, he was doing that, feeling pretty good about it, <laughs> that I'm such a great monk. And these village women were passing by to the river to collect water and they look at him. Oh, the monk is addicted to comfort. He needs a pillow. <laughs> <laughs> and the monk immediately he got a, such a shock he got up immediately and threw the pillow uh, the brick away and then the ladies commented from there oh the monk has anger too <laughs> <laughs> you really can't please the world so <laughs> that this is a story which is which is real which uh, which uh, is recorded swami premananda um, baburam maharaj who was the first manager of belurmat a very very loving soul but he could be a strict disciplinarian which Many young people who are attracted uh, to become monks by his affection and love and concern, they found the moment they, they were outside, it was one thing. The moment they joined and became monks, it was just the other thing. He would be very strict and would scold mercilessly. Now there's this devotee who has written this reminiscence. He says, um, I went to Belurmat, the main monastery, and Baburam Maharaj, Swami Premananda was there. And I saw him scolding a novice, a brahmachari. And Babu Ramar, he was his face was very, he was very fair, so his face had got become flushed red in anger, and he's scolding the the novice for some fault he had committed. And this visitor, he's standing there and thinking, "Oh, the monk has anger. This monk has anger." The moment he said, "I thought this," Swami Premananda turned towards me, the sweetest of smiles, and asked kindly about my welfare. And and I just looked at him in surprise. Next moment, he turned back and face became red, and he started. <laughs> Swami Vivekananda says it's the fool who cannot get angry.
but it will go down and immediately it's like a line drawn in flowing water dukkheshu anudvigna manaha sukheshu vigatas priyaha when things which are pleasant which are nice they happen our normal tendency is we react with hankering i want what do i want i want this to go on i want this to be repeated and i want these pleasant experiences to happen more and more in better quantities and varieties hankering this is called spriya spriya means thirst a thirst i want to preserve this and i want to to perpetuate this this is our general this is my reaction to pleasure now what will it be like when i am enlightened that's the question and krishna says vigata spriha who has no thirst for enjoyment when it comes it's nice but when it goes away you don't you don't hanker for it i am reminded of william blake's beautiful poem um who he says he who holds on to a joy uh, he who holds on to the joy doth kill the winged life but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise what a beautiful way of putting it he was a mystic and all mystics have glimpses of this this infinity upanishad says very beautifully what is this you can call it god brahman nirvana satori whatever you call it upanishad says yo vai bhuma tat sukham that which is infinite is joy nal pe sukham asti there is no true joy in the limited in the narrow in the confined in the bound it's only in the freedom of the infinite that there is real 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 joy i was in san diego for a retreat couple of weeks back and there was this other swami swami atmarupananda he's an american swami from from houston and uh, he was talking about this our normal reaction to joy to to pleasant things is excitement especially in this country and i think nowadays it was not so i think 20 30 40 years back nowadays it's like you have to be excited for everything if you're not excited is something wrong with you and you should be excited the first thing from little kids a simple thing a toy is shown or a, or or we're going out for next uh, an excursion maybe to the central park nothing more than the central park and the kids are asked so aren't you excited and if you aren't what's wrong with you why aren't you excited <laughs> why should i be excited and so <laughs> the yes it's nice the swami put it so so is so funny he said so for example there's a new cereal and the advertisement shows the person who's eating the cereal is wow this is great this is fantastic and then the swami said no no food is that good <laughs> <laughs> yes it's nice but nothing in the world is is that good uh, maybe you are high on something else if you were reacting like that to <laughs> to a cereal <laughs> so this excitement it's nervous excitement this is what passes for pleasure eric from said that what passes for pleasure in our society is building up tension and releasing it by advertisement by social conditioning we build up expectation this will be nice this will be nice and then we get some kind of release and so oh, this was very pleasant very nice let me repeat again build up the tension and release it again so that passes for uh, for pleasure in our society no 
That's just a tickling of the nerves. It's just a tickling of the nerves. The more one is susceptible to that kind of excitement, the more is one is susceptible to the exact opposite depression. So won't, will you be like um, no fun at all when nice things happen? No, 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 not at all. Remember, whenever such questions come, are uh, saints and enlightened people happy at nice things happening in, in society or in, in life? Or are they just, what happened? Why do you like that? I'm enlightened. <laughs> no. Are enlightened people, do they, do they, are they active in life? Do they work for things in life? Always, yes they do. Always look at the lives of the saints. Were they unhappy? No. Christian saints, Islamic Sufi mystics, Hindu yogis, devotees, uh, Buddhist monks, whether they believe in God or not, whether they are meditators or working for welfare of others, whether they are um, immersed in devotion to Krishna or Christ or Kali, whoever in whatever religion, whatever civilization throughout history, one common thing among this wildly diverse lot of saints, one common thing is they are very happy. They are an ex extraordinarily happy lot. One common thing about these saints is they don't grumble. They have no complaint. I often say that don't be in a hurry to be enlightened. You lose the right to complain if you are enlightened. <laughs> don't grumble. Don't be, don't, be, uh, 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 don't be petty. I think it was Saint Teresa who said, she headed an order of nuns. She said, uh, a sad nun is a bad nun. And unfortunately, I made a faux pas. I said this, I, I just thought of it and I quoted it in our society, Vedanta Society in Santa Barbara, which is run by nuns. So one of the nuns was sitting there listening to the talk. She sharply told me, and monks, Swami. <laughs> Not just nuns. <laughs> sad nun is a bad nun. <laughs> it applies equally to monks. So spiritual life, I love this insight from Swami Smaranandaji, who is the president of our order right now. He said a very beautiful thing. Not only the end is happiness, but the means must be happiness too. Not only the end is ananda, the means must be ananda too. We are looking for overcoming suffering and attainment of happiness. So the means that we adopt to it, it may be difficult, it may be a struggle. But in general it should be a happy life. If you are really pursuing what you want in your heart, wouldn't you be happy? So, yes. So, Sukheshu Vigata Spriyaha, devoid of the thirst of trying to perpetuate. Something pleasant happens, very nice. It's gone, goodbye, thank you. Vita Raga Bhayakrodhaha, transcending um, hankering. Uh, transcending fear and transcending anger. Remember one thing, what is meant here is not that the person will have no likes and dislikes, not that the person will have no wants or desires, person can have. The deeper meaning here is the difference between the person who is enlightened and the one who is not and those who, who we are trying to become enlightened, we are spiritual seekers. The difference is that the person in the world, the ignorant person, thinks that these desires, 
satisfaction of these desires will fulfill me. My happiness, my whole project in life is to get a degree, is to um, have a, this relationship, is to live in this place, eat that food, go on that vacation, have this job, wear those clothes. Why? It's supremely important to me because this is where I'm seeking happiness. And the spiritual person, long before enlightenment, must come to this clear understanding. Truly speaking, fulfillment, happiness does not lie in any of those things. You may continue to do that, but don't look at them for fulfilling you. Fulfillment, happiness, the end of life, the goal of life is in spirituality. It is in God-realization, enlightenment, brahma-jnana, moksha, whatever you call it. It is in, in spiritual liberation. Not in worldly acquisition. So, an enlightened person might have preferences. Sri Ramakrishna liked jalebis, uh, the Bengali sweet, the sweets. Uh, somebody might like one thing, somebody might like the other thing. The habits of a lifetime will continue after enlightenment also. Those habits will still be there. But one is, it's like a, the husk. It's like the covering, the shell outside. See, Ramakrishna used to give the example of a ripe coconut. When you shake it, inside the, the core, it, it rattles inside. It's no longer stuck to the, the whole thing. So it's not that it'll ra you'll rattle, an enlightened person rattles if you shake him. <laughs> but, but what it means is, this outer husk of the person is no more you. It continues by its own inertia of past action. It will continue and one day it will drop off. As they say, it, the person which you think you are right now, that person never becomes free. You become free of the person. Not only after the death of the person, while the person is alive and living. While you are living through the person, you are free of it. It doesn't matter so much anymore. So, Vita Raga Bhaya Krodha. Uh, uh, desire, attachment. I want such and such things to fulfill me. Without those things, I'll be terribly unhappy. Spiritual seekers, we think, yeah, yeah, I know this, you just go ahead. No, this is where most of us are stuck. You'll see in the world, people, they're heartbroken. They're, they're hankering, the whole of life. They've they invested so much psychic energy into that. It's very difficult to pull out. A desire, that job, that career, this person, I must have a you know, heartbreak, romantic heartbreak. No, it's not the end of the world. It's not. That person was not there in your life now before this, and that person will not be there in, in, in the future. This thing that my happiness depends on something outside, a person outside, a, an activity outside, a place outside, a certain state of health, a certain state of finances, not at all. If you get it, you still won't be happy. We keep hoping, we keep hoping. Yes, it's nice if things are going well, that's all. So desire, yes, have desires, but make sure there are these three things. One is, the desire should be moral, ethical. There, there should be a certain floor of, uh, absolute uh, floor of decency and, uh, and morality. 
what is n- not legal what is n- frowned upon in in uh, the society you live in what your own conscience pricks what is difficult for me to admit in public let's make an effort to get rid of that from from life that is the uh, so those desires are to be gotten rid of they will they will mess up our lives and and deny us spirituality completely so let let's get rid of them and they'll never give us any happiness anyway the second thing is even among the desires which are allowable which are perfectly all right according to religion morality the world even my own conscience says it's okay there also moderation simple living high thinking too much of worldly possession too much of worldly engagement is absolutely poisonous for spiritual life do not spend too much time vivekananda said do not spend too much time with the material for it makes you more material do not do not spend too much time with matter it makes you more material haven't you noticed let alone spiritual people i have noticed here new york is a very is a wonderful place for uh, artists and writers and uh, uh, poets and philosophers scientists one thing i noticed among people who are high achievers in all of these areas they're pretty austere in their lives almost automatically there's no time and energy spent over uh, left over for um hanging out in the mall and uh, um hopping from restaurant to restaurant and partying and all of that uh, once in a while you might do it i'm not uh, don't look so glum <laughs> <laughs> that's all right but it should not be it should not be an issue at all with you it should not interfere with your inner life yeah so raga vita raga transcending the second thing is that moderation the third thing is as much as possible let these uh, desires be connected with your spiritual life yes i must study and understand vedanta i must pray i i, I must um you know Im- immerse myself in spiritual chanting and music whatever appeals to you those desires are good somebody said no there is a desire for god so that person has not gotten rid of desires yes but the desire for god is not to be counted among other desires why not sri ramakrishna used to say he would give the example a uh, michri which is sh- sugar candy rock candy so he said n- usually sweets are they produce acid uh, acid reflux but this rock candy is also sweet but if you take it 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 destroys it's an antacid similarly he gives this example remember he was a bengali and most bengalis are a little dyspeptic so that's why these <laughs> examples so uh, uh so he says similarly the desire for god rem- frees you from all earthly desires that's why it's not to be counted as a desire it leads to liberation the desire for spirituality is a desire to one desire to be cultivated so these three things it must be moral as far as possible clean up your life second it must be moderate after all if you know that those desires are not going to fulfillment of those desires are not going to give you ultimate satisfaction in life why chase them unnecessarily why devote your time and energy to that and third is channelize your desires towards god in whichever way suits you if you're intellectual through philosophy and vedanta and what not if you are uh, meditative through meditation if you are devotional through prayer and uh, and um, hymns and music and so on if you are active you know, through service doing good to others 
being allied with a good cause and through all of them all of these methods karma yoga bhakti yoga jnana yoga raja yoga all of them bhaya krodha bhaya means fear krodha means anger fear is fear anxiety terror apprehension there are all varieties different levels most of our life is guided by what if if only what if that happens something bad happens what if and hope and expectation if only that happens if only i get that if only that person comes so on and both of these will subject you to uh, fear anxiety the one characteristic of an enlightened person is fearlessness that person has no fear in this universe is not dependent on the universe for anything why should this person be what should the person be afraid of this person knows i am the immortal atman death cannot touch me what should i be afraid of everything is changed when when one holds on to god or is centered in spiritual life name and fame i met this monk a very interesting monk in the himalayas a, a very um, in in they say vairagyavan in in the high himalayas they, they use the word virakt or they would use the local language virakat bahut virakat mahatma <laughs> virakt means completely dispassionate it's not the bengali birakt which means irritated though they are related so you can see how the word might have come completely dispassionate about the world <laughs> or if you derive it it might be irritated with the word but it's not that the person is <laughs> irritated this very dispassionate person a completely detached and um as you can imagine living in 10000 feet high in the himalayas now once some other monks from a nearby ashram came to him and said um you know swami what are these what they are saying about you and his reply was it's all true whatever they are saying he didn't even ask what are they saying i said oh no no you didn't even ask no no you wanted to know if it's true right it's all true i don't care what whatever they are saying it's true oh you are getting angry no why am i get, no no i'm not getting angry you just wanted to know they are out for salacious rumors and gossip see this person doesn't even care what they are saying and what you think of him in hindi he said sab sach hai it's all true so they apologized and withdrew very quickly now that kind of attitude i know it's not so easy if you are living in manhattan you are you are living in the midst of a society and you must know what people uh, you must keep a, like aware of what your friend circles think of you and now it's a wider thousands of friends on facebook of whether they're giving you likes or not i i heard it's a source of great tension for young people i'm not getting likes people are not getting rest- and it has to be immediate it has to be now and every moment to moment to moment people must love me like me uh, every moment of every waking hour what madness is this this is a sure fire prescription for not happiness misery no 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 it doesn't at all matter whether people give those likes or not doesn't absolutely for the again remember this is about the person centered in the atman who realizes this one consciousness i am this one consciousness in all beings it's not a person who's saying all right the swami has said i it, the likes on facebook don't matter now I'll, i'll no matter how miserable i feel i will not look at it no not that way 
Center yourself in the Vedantic teaching. I am not just this person. I am the one consciousness beyond body and mind, the impersonal consciousness. Not brainwashing, actually trying to see that. When you see that and try to center yourself there, you will see all these things follow easily. As a matter of course, you don't have to listen to long lectures. From that point of view, it really doesn't matter. You'll be able to say like that monk, at least mentally. Don't say it to others, they'll feel annoyed with you. It, 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 it doesn't matter. And Facebook will lose one more customer, one more client. <laughs> yeah. You see, love. What is the sign of love? I miss you so much. No, 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 not I miss you. What kind of love is this that it makes you unhappy? See, it seems to be the condition of love is, I love you so much that when I'm even a moment away from you, I miss you and I must let you know every hour to hour that I'm missing you. <laughs> My love for you is making me unhappy. Uh, one hour in a day I get with you that I'm happy and 24 hours I'm un uh, 23 hours I'm unhappy. Why? Because I love so much. It can't be. If a person does love, love is the source of the greatest happiness. How can it be a source of misery? And why would I want it? I would see. I would be horrified if people are missing me and unhappy. No, no, no. Absolutely not. There's a story of the great uh, a Chinese sage who passed away and his funeral was being held and all of his disciples and admirers were there. And this strange old monk, old man comes down from the mountains and he sees this and he cries out thrice. Uh, three cries. Somebody goes and asks, who are you and why did you cry? He said, this person who is being, whose funeral you are observing, he is my friend. My, one of my best friends. So oh, yes, but he was our master. And he has passed away and we are so unhappy. He says, yes. And I said, alas for him, that's why I cried out. I thought he was perfect, but he is not. Because he has left all of you in bondage. Mm -hmm. You're crying for him. The Buddha said that I have not taught like those who te teach with clenched fists. What I have taught is absolutely out in the open. The, the teaching of, of uh, the Buddha is out in the open. And be a light unto yourselves. See if it is, do not believe, he told Anand I think, do not believe because I have said so, do not believe, do not believe the book because the book says so, do not believe because your teacher says so, do not even believe because I say so. Take it and examine it and see that it is true and good, true and good, then only accept it. Swami Vivekananda in one of his last lectures, he, um, last letters he writes, I live, I leave not bound and having and keeping none in bondage. They live in freedom. How beautiful is that? So love should be like that. That real love is there. Genuine deep love and concern for others. Not that I miss you business. I think I told you a couple of classes ago about the monk who said I really like, who told me, I really like, when I was a, a, a novice, I really like your company, I'm so happy when you are here, but remember, when you are not here, I don't even remember you. And that's a great thing. It's a great thing. That person is centered in God. That person loves people through God. 
So his God is always present. When all people are there and when nobody is there. Honor and dishonor. It's a very touching story I've heard. The Swami I joined under, he told me this story. It's about Swami Premeshananda, who was a disciple of the Holy Mother. He was regarded as a Brahma Jnani, enlightened person in his own life. Um, in short, he was called, briefly, he was called Premesh Maharaj, in, in short. Now, many people used to come to him, young people, old people, householders, um, those who wanted to become monks, those who were already monks, senior monks. So, and he was open, like a mother, open to everybody. And in those days, he was very sick. He was uh, on the bed. So, one story. Look how spirituality transforms even what might be the greatest tragedy. This monk of our order, this monk of our order, who was accused of some wrongdoing, he came. Remember, for a monk, reputation is, is all. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, a loss of reputation, ill repute is disastrous, especially if you're living in a community of monks. So he comes, he has been, he, he said that they have accused me of this in our headquarters, in our main monastery, and um, I've been sent on punishment. You have to go. One of the punishments is you go to the mountains and beg for your food and live and meditate there and contemplate your <laughs> misdoings or whatever. So I'm going away. And he comes and he's uh, telling Swami, uh, Premesh Maharaj and weeping profusely. He says, but the, his real sorrow is not that he's being sent away, not that he has to go and live in hardship. His real sorrow is that I did not do it. It's so unfair. And now people dislike me, despise me. The people whom I love and respect so much, they all misunderstand me and despise me. And it was all totally false. So that you can imagine how it hurts. Yeah, lack of justice. And look at Premish Mahaja's response. He's lying on the bed. He pulls this monk's, this, his head, his face down to his chest. His face is full of tears, so he pulls him down to his chest and holds him like this. And he says, My son, how wonderful. You are forgotten by the world, despised by the world. Now it's only you and God. Only you and God. Go and stay only with God. Don't worry about the world. And it worked. When that monk left, his face was radiant and calm. And he went off. I don't know if he ever came back, but that's what. So you see, even reputation, even injustice in the world, how it can be turned around. If you center yourself, if you're a devotee centered in God, if you're an enlightened person centered in the Atman, in the consciousness within. Bhaya Krodha, anger similarly. One of the commentators, Madhusudan Saraswati, distinguishes between the two. Fear is when there is something that I'm afraid of losing, something's reputation, and I have no way of doing anything about it. Then terror comes, fear comes. And anger is when I feel that I have something, some way of reacting. So this is going to happen, somebody is going to do me harm or something bad is going on, and I react in fury. But both of them, the enlightened person transcends. Remember, the person can, and sage can still get angry and use anger for the welfare of others, but not for one's own sake. Sthitadhi munirutyate. 
such an enlightened person, the wisdom is stable. Summing up, who does not react with curses and uh, uh, groans when dukkheshu uh, anudvignamana, mind is serene in, in suffering, does not react, uh, the speech is not full of regret and lamentation, and sukheshu vigatasriya, who is free of thirst in the midst of happiness, when things are going your way, the desire to hold on to that. How is that possible? Because this person is centered in something which neither comes nor goes. The person's entire attention is there. See, for the enlightened person, for the jnani, Brahma jnani, Atman, I am Brahman. It is very clear. So in the world of names and forms, something unpleasant happens. That exists, the I am not the, first of all, I am not the body and mind. So the unpleasant thing happening to the body and mind is of no concern to me. There is a story about Ramana Maharshi. Somebody wrote an article about him, criticizing him and sent a copy to him. So Ramana Maharshi looked at it and then he started correcting the grammar and spelling. <laughs> Somebody said, Maharshi, this is about you. He is cursing you. He said, no, it's about some fellow called Ramana. <laughs> he has no identification with this body, mind, this personality. He's in that. He dwells in that. But he has no identification with it. Hmm. So, when the un I am the Atman. Therefore, this unpleasant thing happening at the body-mind level is of no, no concern to me. Not only that, deeper. First level is disidentification. Second level is you see world, body, mind and the unpleasant things happening. All of them are nothing but me, Brahman. I alone shine forth in these ways. After waking up from your dream, what is your reaction to the unpleasant things happening in the dream? No, it was nasty, but it doesn't matter at all. doesn't matter at all. Similarly, the pleasures, the nice things happening, it's again of no consequence, because this person has got this, the ultimate source of happiness within. All joy and peace is within. When the sun is shining, why keep the flashlight on? Makes no difference at all. It's of no consequence. So the sun is blazing forth. Ananda, your, your real self, is blazing forth with a million times more joy than anything that this world can ever provide. And that joy can never be lost. It's permanent. It's always there. Imagine the bliss of a saint. The Panchadashi says, Why is this saint, the enlightened person, always unshakably happy and joyful. Not that the person always goes around with a smiley face. <laughs> Not like that kind of happiness, but a deep contentment. Complete, unshakable contentment. No matter what the circumstances are of the external world. Why? Three things he says in Panchadashi. Kritakrityataya, having accomplished what is to be accomplished in human life. Imagine, all our projects in human life, Whatever you might think, this is worth doing. Suppose you have done all of it. Just imagine, sit and think about it. What will it be like? What will the peace in your heart be like? All the things, no limit to your imagination. All the things wish you wish you could have or would have attempted. Suppose you have done all of that. How much peace will be there in your heart? This person is much more than that. Much more than that. 
has attained that which with the Bhagavad Gita says, attaining which the greatest of sorrows cannot shake you. Attaining which nothing greater remains to be attained. So, Kritakrityataya, Praptavya Praptataya, what is to be attained in life this person has attained. Gyatavya Gyatataya, what is to be known in life, you call it God, the real self, Brahman, enlightenment, that has been done, is known. Imagine the peace of this person. Unshakably so. So this is the, from, from that reason it, it comes that Sukheshu Vigatas Friya, the little, the flashlight in the, in the, when the sun is blazing forth, inconsequential, little pleasures that flit about, come and go. Why are they coming and going? Because of the past karma of that little person. Let them come and go. Nothing to me. Nothing to me. I don't hang up. It'd be crazy to hanker up after that. Hmm. Swami Brahmananda, he was meditating, the, the spiritual son of Sri Ramakrishna. His picture is where? I think there, on the corner there. So he was the first president of our order. Swami Vivekananda said he's a dynamo of spirituality. There's more spirituality in him than in me. So he says that uh, when he was meditating in, in Vrindavan, a devout person comes and it's cold there, puts a blanket um, around him. He's sitting in deep meditation, a blanket in front of him. And then a thief who was looking carefully and seeing the motionless Swami carefully crept up, picked up the, up the blanket and ra ran for it. The Swami is watching that in uh, absolute peace, a smile. A similar incident in Banaras, a monk told me who had seen this. There was a monk, not of our order, one of those crazy enlightened people who would live naked on the streets of Banaras. But he was an enlightened person. And he would come and visit our monastery. And um, our monks would put a dhoti around him so that he wouldn't be enlightened. And he was just like a little child. And he would walk away again. They would feed him and he would... He would go where his mind pleased him, sort of wandering around. One day he was standing and shivering in the cold um, in near the Ganga. And this uh, high society lady, she was, a, she was a princess of some royal family. In those days, you know, they used to go in, in this, these are called uh, palanquins. You have any idea what a palanquin is? It's like a box you sit in and people bear it, they carry you. So if you are high born or things like that. So this lady was sitting in the palanquin and from the parda inside she saw this monk and she realized this is a, he is a very high soul indeed. So she told the guards who were with her that go and give him a, a blanket to cover himself with, like a comforter. So they went and wrapped it around him. He stood there grinning and shivering there and they put it around him and they bowed down and they walked away. Next day, again that queen was passing, that, that princess was passing by uh, in the... Uh, palanquin and she sees in the same spot that say, the same monk he's standing there again naked and, and shiver, shivering in the cold he said what happened somebody must have stolen it from him or so she asked the guard to go and find out and to help that monk so the guard goes and says um, oh, holy sir what happened to the blanket which I gave yesterday and this is very nice in Hindi I'll, I'll uh, translate in in English afterwards. He says, uh, Main kya daroga hu tera kambal ka rakhwali karunga? 
am i am i the village constable who's going to <laughs> guard guard your blanket <laughs> so no idea of possession has come over that nor indeed over his own body you put something here what is it to me <laughs> why do you expect me to stand guard over it मैं दरोगा हूँ तेरा तेरा कंबल की रखवाली करूँगा विगत प्रिया नो अटैचमेंट वन एंड दे आर अमॉन्ग द हैप्पीएस्ट पीपल द फ्यू आई वुड से ट्रूली एनलाइटन पीपल आई हैव मेट इन माई लाइफ और स्पिरिचुअली एडवांस्ड दे आर लाइक द वेरी डीपली जॉयफुल हैप्पी पीपल नेक्स्ट वन फिफ्टी सेवन it is a continuation of answer to the same question how does this person speak yasarvatran bisneha yasarvatran bisneha tat tat prapya shubha shubham tat tat prapya shubha shubham nabhinandanti nadveshti nabhinandanti nadveshti tasya pragya pratishtita tasya pragya pratishtita so this is an answer to the question how does this person speak so nabhinandanti nadveshti does not react in praise and uh, effusion effusiveness or no, doesn't curse or lament doesn't react in praise or effusiveness when things go nice in our view that things are going nicely for this person and does not react with curses or lamentations or misery uh, when things seem to go badly for this person yes sarvatra navisneya in all pers- persons no attachment no attachment means no special attachment this is mine this person is mine this place is mine these possessions are mine this kind just like that monk am i uh, the village constable and i'm going to take care so that's an extreme example with an inner attitude whether you are a monk or a householder the inner attitude should be this so you should should i allow people of the street to come and uh, ransack my house no when you are a householder this common sense to be uh, to be applied if you but you're taking care of god's property i to have an ashram which i have to take care of is god's property it's nothing to do with me similarly body that's also god's property you take care of it keep it healthy the mind keep it positive centered in god or or or, or the self within but it's nothing to do with me attachment so unattached one of the monks who i revere very much one of the best monks i have met met in my life a very senior monk who was my mentor um someone asked him once what's your spiritual practice and he answered in one word unattachment now he was the head of a big center when i when i became a monk there were 500 kids uh in that center in this school and there were monks under his guidance novices like me and lot of other people you know teachers and staff and all employed people so it was a big center in india unattachment does not mean um a kind of disregard for the world kind of alienation no he was most engaged more engaged than the rest of us unattachment d- detached means that no personal stickiness 
Personal stickiness means this person, this food, this pot. I remember a funny thing when I was a, a novice. Uh, there was uh, there's a when we all used to eat together, all the monks, novices, and the students, everybody, like 500 people sitting down to eat. Uh, so there's, there's this monk who is senior to me. So he comes, and a young novice has come who was a bit of a rebel and very outspoken, rude to the point of rudeness. So <laughs> he was sitting there, and this monk comes and says, you are in my spot. That's where I sit. It's and this young man, he looks up at this monk who is far senior to him and says, if you are attached like that, you can't be a monk. <laughs> Which is really rude for a person <laughs> who is here just for a few weeks and this monk has been a monk for 20 years maybe. But to the credit of that monk, he, he, he couldn't believe his ears. For a, but then he went and changed his place and sat, sat elsewhere. But attachment, my spot. So this kind of attachment, this stickiness. Sri Ramakrishna says, when you break open a jackfruit, it's a very rural Indian kind of thing. You have to smear, apparently, I don't know, I've never done that, break open a jackfruit. You have to smear your hands with oil, because the jackfruit has a sticky kind of gum. If you don't do that, you're going to get completely entangled. And you're going to be a real, you'll make a big mess. So that's what is like in, in samsara. You're completely entangled and making a big mess. That's oil, he says, which you smear your hands with and then break open the jackfruit that protects it against the sticky stuff. That oil, he says, attain devotion to God first. Attain devotion to God first. Stickiness in the world. <laughs> attain devotion to God first. And then bhakti. And then enter into samsara. It will not affect you. So. This vairagya detachment. Of course Sri Ramakrishna also wants. It should not be markat vairagya. He says a monkey detachment. Monkey detachment he says. People get a blow sometimes in life. A dear, a near and dear one passes away. And then you take. You know, the, the story is that you take him to the cremation ground and the body is burnt in the Hindu rite of cremation so this is called um, Shamshan Vairagya Shmashan Vairagya that means the Vairagya detachment of the cremation ground so a near and dear per person has passed away it's such a blow oh it's all true what Vedanta says what the scriptures say the world is impermanent and uh, um, God alone is true but that happens just temporarily for a few months it lasts and then again so there is a story of about a young man who ran away from his village to become a monk and to find God. And everybody was worried in the village, where did this boy go? And after six months, a letter comes in those days, postcards, comes home. Mother and father, please accept my salutations. I am now in the holy city of Banaras. Please do not worry about me. I have started a little pawn shop and... Uh, I have met this girl, I'll come home very, uh, very soon with your daughter-in-law. He's also married and he's got a business run. Now what happened to the detachment that I want to seek God? That was the, that's called the cremation detachment, cremation ground detachment. Uh, because of the shock of coming into contact with the, with the underlying realities of life. One should be careful and see that it's not of that kind. So I'll stop here. And yes, a question? 
Yes. Emotional attachment to God is that good, or should one be detached? Never. Always be attached to God. Attachment to God is a good thing. Yes. Detachment from the world and attachment to God is spirituality. Yes. If you are not of the devotional bent of nature, if you are a philosopher, a Vedantin, all right, then the attachment is to to reality. This witness consciousness, Satchidananda within. So that's where you are centered. Otherwise. A devotee is attached to God. If you are attached to God, then these things will become easy. Serenity in times of distress. What is distress for a devotee? Nothing. The only bad thing that a devo- it can happen to a lover of God is to forget God. That's the only bad thing. Anything that happens in the world, a rainy day is not a rainy day. This is a saying uh, in Hindi, a couplet. A rainy day is not a rainy day. That is a rainy day when I forget the name of Hari. So the attachment to God gives you serenity of mind in trouble and, and, and unhappiness. God is the source of my happiness. So the worldly happiness I do not hanker after. See, if you think about attachment to God, Lord, love of God, all these qualities will come immediately. Just think about it. That serenity, that detachment, that uh, um, non-hankering for worldly pleasures, all of them come immediate, straight away from the love of God. So love of bhakti is a very great, great thing. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu